Welcome back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son, and in this episode, we'll dive into the final episode of a five-part Advent series titled Good Tidings. Today, we're going to talk about the wise men. Pastor Harris reminds us of how important it is that we make it a standard practice to dig into Scripture and make sure we really know what it's telling us. Case in point, the three kings we find in the traditional Christmas story. My dad was always a pretty straight shooter, so I got a kick out of dad's answer to his own simple question he poses regarding how the story of the three wise men following a star actually came about. He simply answers, and I quote, Well, it all started from certain myths and legends that were concocted after the church had been overrun by apostasy in the 4th century. I'd say that's a pretty straight answer, maybe not the most Christmassy answer I've ever heard, but accurate nonetheless. Now, lucky for us, in this episode, we'll also be paid a visit by the great Hercule Poirot of all things biblical to investigate and correct any great misconceptions of the three men that we call the wise men. Pastor Harris uncovers specifics behind the text that shed light around the locations, timing, and background of the many aspects that surround these men. Now with that, I hope you enjoy the final episode of 2021, as well as the final episode of the Good Tidings series. This one's titled, The Wise Men. As I said this morning, I want to dispel a mistaken notion. And that mistaken notion is this. Those men we call the wise men did not follow a star. Let me say it again. Those wise men did not follow a star. How do I know that? Just ask yourself, how on earth would anyone follow a star? After all, Stars are fixed, stellar entities. They don't move from place to place. In addition, stars can only be seen at night. So the question arises, did these wise men sleep all day and travel all night? The answer is no. Another question is this. How did this concept of three wise men following a star ever develop? That's not in the Bible. He never says there were three of them. Well, the answer is as follows. It comes from certain myths and legends that were concocted after the church had been overrun by apostasy in the 4th century. Superstitious people eventually came to believe the viability of these myths and legends. And now we see them reenacted every December on lovely embossed Christmas cards. Myths and legends have especially sprung up around these wise men. So what's the truth about them? Who were they? What actually happened? Well, as astounding as it may seem to us, these men were astrologers. Now, that ought to be shocking to you. These men were astrologers, not astronomers. Don't mix that up. They were astrologers. Now, this is what brings the issue of the occult into play in our awesome nativity story. So we must use true wisdom and discernment as we interpret this material. In fact, we must carefully examine and rightly divide the Word of God to see what it actually has to say about these wise men from the East. Now, in introducing these wise men, or magi, Matthew's Gospel reports this in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, it reads as follows. It's going to take some time. Now, after Jesus was born... In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, so that I might come and worship him also. Liar. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, this is the verse I want you to watch. It's important. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. See that? Verse 11. And when they'd come into the house. Now, something else I want you to see. Does it say stable? When they had come into the house, they saw the young child. Say child. With Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Verse 12. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So, now, that is the biblical story of the visit of the wise men as it was told to Matthew. But notice now the story, what the story does not say. It does not say that the wise men went to an inn, nor does it say they worshipped around a manger. In particular, Mary must have struggled. You know, she, can you imagine that wise men coming to your house? Now, it states they went into a house. Now, there is a Greek word in this passage that helps us clarify this event. Now, the Greek noun that we translate into English as child is the Greek word paidon, P-A-I-D-I-O-N, paidon, which is different from the Greek noun brephos, which we translate as baby. An infant is a brepho. A toddler is a paidon. Now, the word used in Matthew's gospel indicates a pation, a toddler, a child who is two or three years old. It doesn't refer to an infant. It should be apparent from the text that Jesus, that after Jesus had been born, the Holy Family had moved from that birthing cave where Jesus was born into a house in the village of Bethlehem. And as I see it, they lived in this house for an extended period of time, perhaps, shockingly enough, as much as two years. 
And during that time, Mary and Joseph must have spent time pondering the miraculous death or birth of their son. Can you imagine? Now, I think about this a lot. Don't you think? Now, let's remember, Mary may have been 16. She could have been younger than that. She's just, to us today, she would just be a child herself. Now, don't you think she struggled with the words the angel of the Lord had spoken to her in Nazareth? Don't you think she pondered those things? Remember, the angel had said this in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 33. Look at the screen. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Now, don't you think she asked herself, what did that angel mean? What was the angel saying to me? She must have especially wondered about the promise that her son would sit on the throne of her father David and reign forever. Don't you think she's looking at this baby and says, how is that going to happen? We're peasants here. We're not a part of the family of the Herods. How is this going to, to, to come to pass? Couple that with the fact that she was still a virgin. And it soon becomes apparent that this was all too much for a young girl to handle. I can't even imagine being in Mary's place. Can you? There are some hints, though, in the gospel that Mary had begun to recognize the enormity of what had happened to her. And no doubt Joseph recognized it as well, don't you think? Now, one of the first things the two of them must have realized, think about this, was this. Everything that was told to them, everything that had happened to them involved that great covenant their God had made with David ben Jesse, their ancient ancestor. That promise was this. Someone of David's direct lineage was going to sit on the throne of Judea forever, and that someone they had determined was going to be their son because the angel of God had told them so. The two of them also knew what Micah the prophet had prophesied. Remember, he said that when Messiah appeared, he'd be born in the village of Bethlehem. Every devout Jew knew that. So when all of these things were considered together, it caused a reaction in the minds of Joseph and Mary. Now, if we just do a little detective work, and of course you know who I am. I am the Hercule Poirot of all things biblical. When all of these things are considered together, it just, and we begin to investigate this fact becomes clear. Mary and Joseph somehow reached the conclusion that if everything they had been told by the angels was true, then their son was indeed destined to become the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. I think that was being birthed in them in that two years from the time of Jesus' birth. When they moved into that house at Bethlehem, they thought those things through and thought to themselves, surely this is the truth. And this being the case, reason dictated to Joseph and Mary that they needed to make their home in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth. They remain in a house in Bethlehem. The scripture is clear about that. And this was because Bethlehem was believed to be the home of the long-awaited Messiah and their son was destined to be that person. They believed that enough to stake their lives on it. 
Now, the fact that Joseph and Mary had reached this conclusion is made even clearer to us in the Gospel according to Luke. Now, this account reports that after Mary and Joseph had presented Jesus in the temple, remember when she went to offer the doves for the cleansing, that they go to the temple, and just as soon as they go to the temple, the Scripture says in Luke that they returned to Nazareth. Now you say, Pastor, how do you explain that? You're saying they returned to Bethlehem. Well, sometimes you have to read behind the text. See, that's a part of rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's what Luke says. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. See, Pastor, this doesn't fit. You haven't told us the whole truth. Well, think about this. At a later time, the wise men come and arrive in Bethlehem. And Matthew reports that Mary and Joseph and their child were living in a house in Bethlehem. So how do we explain it? It's got to be either that or the Bible contradicts itself. And we don't believe that's possible. Well, logic dictates to me that when Mary and Joseph had presented the sacrifice, she had been ritually purified, that they briefly returned to Nazareth to close up their home and to close up their business. That only makes sense to me. You wouldn't just walk away and leave your business there, leave your home there, leave your goods there. They couldn't carry all that with them when they went, so they went back and they got their things together and returned to Bethlehem. You see, the Bible doesn't contradict itself if you're hurt off by wrong. <laughs> then, <laughs> once this has happened, I ask you this. Would you blame them for returning to Bethlehem? No, you wouldn't. What if they had stayed in Nazareth? I wouldn't have wanted to. In the face of all the gossip, no one in Bethlehem knows them. But everybody in Nazareth does. Can you imagine the rumors swirling around this ungodly woman that got pregnant before she was married? That was a big thing then. If they had chosen to live in Nazareth. They would have had to have lived with these constant rumors and innuendos. But here's the big thing. So would their son. Perhaps that is why the Holy Family would later be found living in a house in Bethlehem. But even if we did not have the Greek word to tell us that Jesus had grown into a toddler while living in that house in Bethlehem, we would know this. We'd still be able to deduce his age from other portions of the text. See, there's so much if you just... Really study the word that you discover to be true. For example, when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, remember, we read it. Herod asked them when they had first seen the star in the east. Their answer prompted Herod to issue explicit orders to kill all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years of age and younger. Now, if Jesus had just been born, the order would have been kill all the newborns. But that's not it. All the children, two years of age and under. Now, this would suggest that whatever the Magi had seen in the heavens had first appeared two years earlier, near the time that Jesus had been born. Now, another myth that has to be debunked about these three wise men is the idea they were kings. They were not kings. 
The text of Matthew mentions nothing about kings. In spite of the carol that we sing, we three kings of Orient are. Would you want me to sing that for you? I didn't think so. See, this, these men were exactly what the text says they were. The text tells us they belong to a sect of astrologers in the Middle East known as the Magi. M-A-G-I. So where did these men come from? Well, the fact is also difficult to nail down. Apparently, the Magi sect was composed of Persians or perhaps Parthians at that time in history. And these ethnic groups lived somewhere in the general area of ancient Babylon. Now, make no mistake about this. Make no mistake about this. This group of men, the Magi, were true scholars. They were students of the sciences, but they also studied philosophy and medicine. They sought after the wisdom of the ages. However, their major vocations involved astrology. They studied the skies intensely, carefully tracking and charting the stars and the planets. And they were deeply religious. Now, I say religious in the terms of superstitious. If we put together all of this in, we have a picture of these magi. But the question is, what prompted them to come to the land of Judah, or Judea, to find a new king? Especially at the time they did. What, what happened? Well, the answer to this question has several facets. And the most important involved the writings of the Hebrew prophets. Does that shock you? People living in Persia who are well acquainted with the prophecies of the great prophets of Israel. Now, the answer to this question is as follows. The Babylonian captivity of the Jews began or occurred between 605 B.C. and 587 B.C. And during that period, the brightest and the best of the population of Judea had been carried away into captivity. And two of the greatest prophets came up and arose during that period of exile. Their names were Ezekiel and Daniel. Now, it was at this time that the prophet Daniel, around the year 587, the prophet Daniel was shown a vision that is recorded for us in Daniel 9. Now, in this vision, Daniel was shown an outline of Jewish history from his own time until the time when the Messiah of the Jews would appear. Now, this period of time was broken down into 70 weeks, each week representing seven years or a total of 490 years. He was shown a prophecy of Israel's history for the next 490 years. Are you with me? Now, this vision revealed the exact day when the timetable of this vision would begin. God revealed to Daniel in by sending an angel that this time period... These 490 years would be initiated when the Jews would be of Jerusalem would be authorized to rebuild the walls and the streets of the city. That is when it began, and we know the exact day that edict was issued. It was one Nisan in the year 445 B.C. Everybody knows that. It is a part of history. It's recorded everywhere. Now, the one who revealed it was Artaxerxes II. 
He was the emperor of the Persian Empire. Daniel was told that the Messiah of Israel would appear exactly 483 sacred years after this edict was issued, omitting the years of Jubilee. Now, this meant that the Messiah of Israel would appear. Now, get this. If you trace it, and it's very traceable, the Messiah of Israel would appear on the day of 10 Nisan, 30 A.D., the day we call Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And if you recall, the people waved palm branches, threw their clothing on the road, and they began to sing the words from the psalm. Baruch Hashem Adonai. The coronation hymn for the kings of Israel. They were declaring that this man coming on the white donkey was their Messiah. Why would they do that? It's because they understood the timetable God had established. Are you with me? So, what God goes on to say is that once the Messiah appeared, it has a terrible aftermath. Because it says that immediately after the Messiah appears, he would be cut off. The word there in Hebrew would mean killed. He would be cut off in the middle of the week. This means who would kill him? Daniel's told. It'll be someone called the prince who is to come. And two days after Palm Sunday, Jesus was killed. And he was killed immediately in the middle of the week on Wednesday. Wow. What an astounding prophecy. Now, the Magi sect, without question, knew all of Daniel's prophecies and all the things that had been revealed to him. You say, Pastor, how is that? How would they know that? Daniel was a powerful man in his day, and he was a Chaldean, and therefore he belonged to the Magi class. In fact, he was probably the most brilliant of all the Chaldeans, of all the Magi who ever lived. Daniel was lifted up as the man. His writings were studied and examined. All other Chaldeans honored him. They were especially fascinated by his people, his native people, the people called the Jews. You see, did you know, the Jews were an enigma to the Persians. They were an enigma to the Romans too. They, the whole world just did not understand the Jews. These Jews had no idols to assist them when they worshipped. How do you... Ex- how do you worship something you can't see? They have an invisible God. They can't see. We've at least got idols that represent our gods. We don't, we don't believe the idols are the gods, but we believe our gods inhabit the idols. The Persians would ask themselves, how can these people worship a God they can't see? And how can they worship just one God? You see, to them, the forces of nature alone dictated the fact that there must be many gods. In other words, they worship volcanic gods. If you didn't appease your gods, volcanoes erupted. 
you had rain gods. If you wanted it to rain, you had to appease the rain gods. You had fertility gods. If you wanted kids, you had to have fertility gods. You had lightning gods, love gods, all of whom had to be appeased by the human family. But these Jews only had one God. And they said that wherever they were in the world, even in exile in the land of Persia, their God was in Persia with them. You see, other nations didn't believe their gods went with them. They were the gods of the local area. To these people, the Jewish idea that God was constantly present with them was ludicrous. Everyone knows that the gods only belong to the cities or states where they're worshipped. They have no power in any other place. But the Jews said, uh-uh, it ain't so. And the more these Persian people listen to these Jews, the more they can see that the monolistic, mono, monotheistic views of the Jews made sense. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was just one great God and this God was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? Wouldn't it be awesome if they worshipped a God who was everywhere in the world? Wouldn't it be awesome if we worshipped a God who cared about his people? No matter where they are in the world. They also knew, now believe me, the Persians also knew about the Jewish belief in the coming Messiah. So because of Daniel, the Messiah of Persia, knew that the Messiah of Israel would appear in the year 30 A.D., they weren't fools. They could calculate the dates. See, those Chaldeans were sitting there taking Daniel's prophecy. They knew exactly when Messiah was to appear. So what do they do? They begin to see if there's signs that indicate that birth to them. Now, one night, they begin to receive a sign that the time had come. Now, remember, these men were first and foremost astronomers. They studied the night skies. They studied the constellations as they moved through the heavens. They studied the planets, the sun, the moon, as they moved through the various phases. Now, what many people do not know is this. At the time, this time, all the kingdoms of this world had their own constellations. Did you know that? There were believed to be 70 nations. And each of the 70 nations had their own constellation. Now, the constellation associated with Judea and Samaria, the area ruled by Herod the Great, was Aries the Ram. And on April 19th, or April 17th, in the year 6 B.C., the year that Jesus was born, Something spectacular happened in the heavens. Jupiter, which was considered by the ancients to be the king of the planets, moved into the constellation of Aries. Now, to an astrologer, this was the sign of a significant royal event in Judea. However, on that day, April 17, 6 BC, there were even more royal portents. On that day, both Saturn and the sun had moved into Aries several days earlier. But on this particular day, the moon eclipsed just before dawn, revealing Jupiter as the morning star. Now, to the ancients, 
the Magi included, this would have announced the birth of a super king. Now, I know that this entire scenario troubles us because it involves a pseudoscience of astrology, which belongs to the occult. Don't you ever read horoscopes. I'm not giving you permission. Now, the question is this. Would God ever use occultic things to announce the birth of his son? Well, the truth is this. This divine announcement was being made to people of the Gentile world. So he had to speak to them at the level of their own understanding. The only way God could have communicated with a group of Magi astrologers was to put the stars into a configuration that would speak to them. And he did. A super king had been born in Judea and they were going to pay homage to him. And so they set out for Judea. But why would they do this? Well, it was to be part of the action. They wanted to be there and see the super king. They wanted to see where their world was going. You see, the ancient historians from that era tell us that between the years 6 B.C. and 2 B.C., the entire world expected the appearance of a super king. Why? Because of Daniel. They could put it together. If he was going to die in 30 A.D., he'd have to be born sometime around 6 B.C. Not just the Jews expected this. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The whole world did. For example, let me give you just... Could, would you allow me just to cite a few examples? Take the greatest of all the Roman historians. Suetonius wrote these words, and I quote, There has spread over all the East the old and established belief that it was fated at that, fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. This is a Roman historian. Someone is coming from Judea, we believe, that will rule the entire world. How right he was. Oh, that's not all. You want something else? The Roman historian Tacitus, one of the great ones, wrote these words, and I quote, There was a firm persuasion at this very time 6 B.C., the East was to grow powerful and rulers from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. The appearance was announced to this world in the only way ancient people could understand it. In the heavens. And the time was right. When Christ appeared the world was waiting for God, and a desire for God had been planted in their hearts. You see, the entire world had been struggling to create a golden age, a utopia. But they had discovered what the world today will soon discover. There cannot be a golden age without God. What is it we're doing today? 
We're trying to create a utopia. Our political parties trying to make a world where there's no poverty or disease or death or hunger, all these things. But they're trying to do it without God. If you have no one to hold your world together, your golden age will turn into what we're seeing today. Drug addiction, crime, all the things we see happening around us. We're not getting a golden age and we struggle harder and harder to bring it about all the time. It doesn't happen. That great golden age. You see, I did something horrible this week. Do you mind if I tell you the horrible thing I did? I took down the Advent wreath. But what I should have done, I should have left it there. With the Christ candle burning. I really should have done that. Here's the thing. We're going to have that golden age. And it's going to happen. It didn't happen with the first advent. It's going to happen with the second advent. You see, we don't celebrate. That advent wreath has nothing to say about the first advent. It's already happened. It's about the second coming of our Lord to establish that golden age. And believe me, He will establish a kingdom where there will be no poverty. There will be no disease. There will be no death. He'll establish a world we can't even imagine in our wildest dreams. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with each one feed one, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.